This podcast is sponsored by the Social Enterprise and Crowdfunding Conference. Learn more at secfc.co. Welcome to Your Mark on the World, bringing you another changemaker with champion of social good, Devin D. Thorpe. Welcome, everyone. This is uh, Devin Thorpe. I'm a Forbes contributor covering social entrepreneurship and impact investing. And we are really fortunate to have with us today David Wilson, the head of strategic analysis group at Capgemini. And we're talking about the trends in uh, among the wealthy, the high net worth individuals to pay more attention to social impact. Uh, David, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, the, the pleasure is all ours. Uh, Capgemini, in partnership with RBC Wealth Management, recently published a report about the high net worth individual's interest in social impact. And it was striking how many people find that uh, desire uh, to do good to be important. It runs counter to what I think many people perceive uh, of uh, the wealthy. Tell us a little bit about your take on this report. Yeah, that's a good question. I think the first point is, you know, what is social impact? There are a lot of terminologies out there in this space, social good, social impact, philanthropy. Uh, we define social impact as any investment of money, of course, but also time and expertise that a high net worth individual undertakes in order to generate a positive social impact. And you're right, the findings this year were, were astonishing. We surveyed along with Royal Bank of Canada and also Scorpio Partnership who help us administer this survey, which is the largest of its kind in the industry, four and a half thousand high net worth individuals. Uh, and you're right, the responses back were fascinating. About 90% of high net worth individuals said it was uh, at least somewhat important to them to focus on social impact. Uh, 60% said it was extremely important or very important, which is which is a very, very high number. Another piece that I took away that was especially interesting was among those top 10 for importance, nine of the top 10 actually were high net worth individuals in emerging markets. So by no means were the developed markets low, but you're really seeing this become an absolute critical area uh, for high net worth individuals in emerging markets. It, it is just fascinating to uh, look at some of the data. Uh, it, it also suggested that there was a little bit of a trend toward younger people finding that it is younger high net worth individuals finding this to be important. Uh, comment on that if you would. Yeah, absolutely. I think across, we, we look at lots of things, social impact one area, digital, lots of trends in the industry. Uh, and you see this real kind of divergence between these high net worth individuals under 40 and these high net worth individuals above 40. You know, one very simple stat from our results were what were the causes most of interest? Uh, you see some very different results from the under 40s to the over 40s. You know, over 40, much more, especially over 60, perhaps unsurprisingly, much more focused on, on healthcare. Uh, and when we spoke to some firm executives who really deal with clients in this space, uh, you see a lot of interesting movements around the under 40 space, you know, climate change, energy security, all of these top of mind topics 
uh, I think you see more activity for the for the under 40s. And then when you boil all of that together and look at it through the wealth management lens, uh, from a firm perspective, why is that important? It means you're going to you're going to have to train your advisor base to be able to speak not just the language of the patriarch matriarch head of the family who who's generated a lot of the wealth. You're also going to have to train them either individually or through advisor teams to be able to connect on the issues that their children want if you're going to retain those assets, uh, which you're seeing as a key area of uh, change in the industry. One of the implications of the report that is uh, interesting is this was a global survey, and that's somewhat punctuated by the fact that you're joining us today from Paris. Uh, of course, we're doing this for Forbes based in New York. I happen to be in Salt Lake City. so. Uh, it feels rather global already, our conversation, but your survey identified that the high net worth individuals in China, uh, uh, Indonesia, uh, India, in the developing world seem to be uh, have more consciousness about social impact than those in the developed world, say in Western Europe uh, or the United States. Well, I think it's, an, it's, it's a very true observation in terms of noticing that. You, know, you picked out the big three. Those are the three markets where social impact came out to be most important to high net worth individuals. I think there's three trends that kind of underpin and provide some nuance to that. The first, of course, is emerging markets compared to developed markets. If you're a high net worth individual or anybody in an emerging market, probably not got as much reliance on the state uh, as you have in developed markets. That infrastructure of the state being the vehicle through which charitable giving and initiatives takes place doesn't exist as much. I think point number one. Uh, point number two would be, of course, the and I lived in India for three years. I mean, you, you see it so much more day to day. It's the, the, the issues when you're talking of billions of people. Those three countries have probably a huge percentage of the world's overall population. These are much larger scale issues and much more complex to resolve, and you're much more aware of them on a daily basis. Um, and I think I think the third element I would say is just the uh, the the element around you've got first generation wealth creators in a lot of these markets. You know, it's a much shorter wealth creation cycle that they're experiencing. So you've got your to give an anecdote, you know, the hypothetical uh, you know patriarch who's made his wealth in the supermarket business in China. You know, over the last 20 years he's built this from from nothing, from a rural impoverished background. And now he wants to give back to that local community that may still be uh, far from wealthy. And I think those are the three dynamics that make it quite a bit different. But it's not to say developed markets, uh, high net worth individuals focus less on it. It's just very different context. Let's talk just a minute, and, and perhaps I should have asked about this at the uh, front end of our conversation, David. But how are you defining high net worth individuals? I, I, is the industry standard 25 million in assets, or am I? What's the benchmark? That's a good question. I probably should have defined that up front. A high net worth individual is 1 million uh, in, in U.S. dollars investable assets. So 1 million U.S. dollars investable assets. So that excludes your primary residences. It excludes your uh, collectibles. It excludes your consumer durables. Um, on the flip side, we also have, and it gets closer to your, your definition, $30 million in the book. And we call that an ultra-high net worth individual with the same financial asset uh, definition I just outlined. I see. So the, the high net worth individuals that the survey covered include people with a mere $1 million of investable assets. So that's a, a, a moderate enough uh, 
definition that uh, it encompasses a lot of the world's, uh, maybe not a high percentage of the world's population, but it would include millions upon millions of people around the globe. It's certainly, right? it's certainly a small percentage of the world's population, but of course it's a, you know, a one, a, someone with one million in investable assets, you know, from a wealth management perspective, is going to be a lot different to someone with 50 million in assets. I think the key from our social impact uh, analysis is that this is really uh, the importance cuts across all wealth bands. Of course, there's some, some differences, uh, but you see it really cut across all wealth bands, as opposed to the age demographic factor, where you see under 40s, I think it's something like 85% uh, saying it's at least it's ex extremely or very important, versus only about 50% for those over 60. So I think that's really where you see the difference. Wealth band, uh, I think everyone knows it's important. How they then go about it and what are the options that are provided to them, that's where it gets a bit different at the wealth band level. Interesting, interesting. And uh, as you think about this, you, you began to address how uh, wealth managers ought to be thinking about this. I wonder if you could give some thought and reaction to the idea of how other people should be thinking about this, especially uh, the uh, organizations that would like to tap into those resources, who would like to access their expertise, access their time, access their money, uh, the, the nonprofits and the NGOs of the world. How do they tap into this mindset and the and this desire for uh, these folks to have some positive social impact? It's, a, it's another excellent question. Of course, through the World Wealth Report, we take a very wealth management focused lens. Uh, that being said, we also spoke to some of the intermediaries, some of the other people playing in the space because to understand that you have to. Uh, and also because I think wealth management firms overall certainly are aware of this as, as a emerging, or not even emerging, a very real area of need. And at the same time, I don't think we've seen as much movement uh, or aggressive kind of investment in this space. I mean, partly because it's a very complex and very costly space to play in with the expertise you need to hire the training of your advisory base. Um, so I think it's almost, you know, the industry is moving, but there's a lot of leadership happening outside the wealth management industry. I mean, two, two examples come to mind just, just anecdotally, uh, partly through the implicit conversations we had uh, for the reports development. One, from the pure social responsible investment perspective, you look at the Norwegian pension fund, and that's an example of a huge institutional investor taking a very a socially responsible investing lens, and that's great in itself. You know, screening out sectors that it doesn't believe contribute to social good, uh, etc. The interesting wrinkle is, of course, and we, we validated this by speaking to some of the banks in the region. They're then influenced by the role modeling behavior of the pension fund, and then they cascade that down through the cultural alignment to to screen out sectors for clients. So before the client even asks for it to happen, there's just a belief that this this isn't the way to go. So that's one example of you know. The, the non-financial services sector taking the lead and bringing financial services firms with them. The other example I'd give is happening in the UK. Uh, we spoke to a firm called Big Society Capital, really passionate, really knowledgeable people in this space. And that was uh, that cuts across private sector, public sector, and then the BSC in the middle. The UK government realized that it wasn't going to be able to be the sole instigator of all things social impact going forward. So it's the, or created and tasked the BSC to not invest directly in social impact initiatives, but to be that social impact wholesaler, to create that intermediary layer 
that brings clients together, it brings financial services people together, it brings intermediaries, the consultants, the lawyers, everybody else involved. Uh, not only that, but also taking a huge focus on transparency and impact measurement, which I think is the one area that's really held this, this sector back from development, uh, but at the same time is the key for this to really explode going forward. This really is an important uh, report that you've issued, and it really raises a lot of issues. You alluded to the fact that the results this year seem to be different from past results. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, past surveys you've done and to the extent you've looked at this particular question specifically in the past, how the results compare this year to past years and how far back you might be able to measure that. So we never, this is the second year of the survey. So directly asking clients in the survey, we launched the inaugural survey last year. This is the second year. In the past, we, we've looked at this topic, probably at, I'd say, a, a slightly higher level. I think not in the report, but from just speaking about some of the other research we've done around it. I think what's different this time around is, you know, real social impact and philanthropy interest tends to follow, and, and be, the peaks at least follow significant periods of wealth creation. Uh, and so what we've got now is, you know, 2008, 2013, we've created, I think, about 20 trillion in U.S. financial wealth uh, just in five years. Um, so two significant points there. Social impact and philanthropy, you know, led by people like Bill Gates, Warren Buffett. This was a conversation that started before the financial crisis. Its big test was the financial crisis. Does this weather the storm when trillions are wiped off equity markets and, and other asset classes? I think the answer, first of all, is yes. We've only seen an increase since then. The second is, okay, with all this newly created wealth, you know, we, we're forecasting wealth to go to, I think, 64 trillion by 2013. If you take just 1% of that, that's 640 billion. Uh, if you take that 1% and say, you know, maybe that could be so the social impact kind of allocation to use a very high level estimate. And that's a huge amount of, uh, of, of capital that can be deployed, not including the expertise and other things that are non-financial. But I think when you ask what's different, I think it's it survived the biggest crisis since the 1920s. It's globalized in nature. This is no longer just a, you know European-led, you know, many years ago, US-led with the Carnegies and the Rockefellers. This is global. We're seeing it across the world as an impact. And I think the infrastructure third that supports this, by no means is it there, but it's certainly getting there compared to where we were maybe, maybe before. Well, David, I really appreciate you taking the time to share the report results with us to talk about and sort of help us analyze these uh, interesting observations. Certainly, I find it encouraging to think about the world's elite being thoughtful about having social impact in a positive way. It's exciting to think uh, about uh, matching up those resources with the world's problems uh, through investment and philanthropy and to get the expertise of people who are successful. It really is uh, an encouraging uh, sign and very uh, sort of uh, hopeful for the future. So thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. I second that. I think it's an exciting time. Is there a way for people to get a copy of the full report? Absolutely. Uh, www.worldwealthreport.com. We have our interactive website where you can play with some of the other data in the report, in addition to downloading a copy of the report. Uh, and of course, happy to have people follow me at David underscore P underscore Wilson, and I'm happy to direct people where necessary. Fantastic. David, thank you very much again. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Devin. All righty. Let's do some good. 
Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded via Google Hangouts on Air and is available at youtube.com forward slash Devinthorpe. Subscribe to this podcast on Stitcher or iTunes by searching for Your Mark on the World. Every weekday, Devon hosts a CEO, celebrity, entrepreneur, or other changemaker here on the Your Mark on the World show to inspire and prepare you to make your mark. Devin is a champion of social good, writing about, advocating for, and advising people who are doing good. He is a Forbes contributor who is a recognized thought leader in social entrepreneurship, impact investing, and crowdfunding. To book Devin as a speaker, visit devinthorpe.com. Learn more about Devin's work at yourmarkontheworld.com. The one-of-a-kind social enterprise and crowdfunding conference on September 26, 2014 at the spectacular Snowbird Resort near Salt Lake City will bring together leaders from across the country in social entrepreneurship, impact investing, and crowdfunding. Register before August 31 for just $60 at secfc.co. The roster of speakers will include Rodney Sampson, author of Kingonomics, Francis Batista, the leading animal rights advocate, and other luminaries. See the full list of speakers at secfc.co. Social entrepreneurs attending the conference will have the opportunity to pitch real investors at the conference. Nonprofit leaders will also be given an opportunity to make a pitch for microgrants and to conduct a one-day crowdfunding campaign during the event. Learn more at secfc.co.